Well, let's uh, take our Bibles, if you would. Second Timothy chapter two. Uh, you may have a hard copy. You may have an electronic copy. Whatever one it is, find Second Timothy chapter one. I would like to read verses one through seven as we begin this morning. You want to hear from God's word more than you want to hear from me. Let's see what God's word says, and then I'll share just a few thoughts in our time together. We read there the Apostle Paul's words, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Well, let's pray for that understanding this morning. Father, thank you that you have allowed us to be together for these moments. Uh, thank you for the time that we have already been exposed to an opportunity in worship. We thank you, Lord, that now as we worship through the word, we want you to be honored. I pray, Father, that you would set me aside, that we would hear your words. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Great passage here. Um, I want to take another route as I kind of bring us into what the Apostle Paul uh, is going to say to us this morning. I, I don't know about you if you're into reading uh, various different articles that have to do with the makeup of of uh, who we are, but uh, I recently read an article by the Center for the Disease Control. Uh, that's the big, the big dogs, you know, the ones that watch over everything that goes on health-wise. You know, when we came back from England or Russia a few years ago, uh, Catherine had salmonella, it was a different strain, and the very first thing after she got back from the doctor's visit was a call from the CDC saying, where have you guys been? What have you been doing? And so she explained the circumstances, which I don't have time to get into today. But the Center for Disease Control wrote this article, uh, and it's called Factors in the Emergence of Infectious Diseases. Isn't that a good title? They know what you want to read before you go to bed at night. The Factors in the Emergence of Infectious Diseases. The author states, and I want to quote, so I'm not misquoted. I have suggested that infectious emergence can be viewed operationally as a two-step process. Number one, introduction of the agent into a new host population, followed by, number two, establishment and further dissemination within the new population. And I bolded these last words, most emerging infections usually originate in one geographical location and then disseminate to new places, unquote. Now, you got that all figured out? In other words, let me kind of narrow it all down to you because I'm a very simplistic guy. 
Diseases begin in one area and they spread into other places. Now, why couldn't they just say that? Because that's the way it goes when you're this type of article writing people. But there it is. Diseases begin in one area and they spread to other places. And what you have is a pandemic situation. Now, you're probably asking that million-dollar question, what does that have to do with us in church this morning? Simply this, if I could shed a positive light on an analogy into our Christian world today. Christianity originates in one area, and then it spreads to other places, or at least it ought to. It started in Jerusalem, and it spread to Antioch and spread throughout all of the regions of the New Testament empire. That's what it was supposed to do. Now, God had to do a little bit of help along the way because the Jerusalem church decided they had a good thing and they were gonna keep it to themselves. So God brought along something called persecution. Sometimes I think in our culture today, we think we have a good thing. And I think what we're beginning to realize is that God is bringing something along to the New Testament church, not this in Paul's error, but also to us. And it's called persecution. And we're gonna see more of it in the United States. I am not a prophet. I'm not a son of a prophet. I'm not even the grandson of a prophet. But I can read the writing on the wall. And it's coming, folks. It's here. Christianity begins in one place, and it ought to spread. And I believe that's what Paul is talking about here in 2 Timothy chapter 2. If it doesn't, it's an unhealthy church. Now, I want to show you what I'm talking about uh, here. So if you have your Bible still open, I want you to understand that by way of introduction, 2 Timothy is the very last words of the Apostle Paul, his last letter. Now, if you were to sit down and write one last letter, what would you pin to the people you want to read that? Paul, Paul, the stalwart figure of the New Testament, has reached the end of the process of God's outcome for him in this mortal life. And laid before us are the words of a dying man. Think for a moment, because maybe you haven't done so lately. Every one of us are dying men. We are dying people. Matter of fact, I read years ago in my psychology book that we were born to die. Interestingly enough, Paul knew that. We are one breath away from checking out. Or as one gal shared with me not long ago, we are one heartbeat away from death. There are none of us guaranteed that when we walk out of this building that we have one more day, let alone one more hour. We are dying people. Richard Baxter, the Puritan, parish pastor to loom workers in Kinderminster, he was one of the most prominent English churchmen of the 1600s, and it was Baxter who quoted a number of different things, but this one I think was very eloquent when he stated, I preached as never sure to preach again as a dying man to dying men. Baxter knew this is it. I may not have any other opportunity, folks. This is the day because we may not have any other opportunity. And when you come to that ultimate conclusion, life and ministry begin to take on a whole new reality. So Paul pours everything he has in this 
last remaining hours in this last letter into a young man that is not identified in chapter two, begin with, by the name of Timothy. Now, it was not unusual for Paul to do that because if you look through the New Testament, he invested his life in many different people. However, there seemed to be something special about Timothy, about Timothy. By the way, do you have a Timothy figure in your life? Do you have somebody that you're investing in, that you're discipling, that, that uh, is learning what you have been learning in the Christian life? See, you can be, if nothing else, praying for that. Now, I say that with the reality that not everybody say at once, oh, whew, good, he took me off the hook. I don't have to do anything except pray. No, no, no. See, Paul was dependent entirely on the Holy Spirit and the grace of God uh, to exemplify what I'm calling in the message this morning the strength of infectious Christianity, a Christianity that, like an infectious disease, spreads all over our communities and our world today. So as we look at the subject of the strength of infectious in Christianity from 2 Timothy 2, I wanna wrap our minds around a few facts that involve three direct correlations. The first is some relevant concerns of the apostle. Second are some practical illustrations, some word pictures that Paul uses. And then third, a careful admonition in verse seven that takes us to that point of conclusion. So first, when it comes to infectious Christianity, I want you to notice two relevant concerns of the apostle Paul. Number one, his first concern, it seems evident in chapter, one, or chapter two, verse one, is the applying of the strength of grace in ministry. The application of strength in Christian ministry. That's why he uses these words, important words, you therefore, my son, be strong in the, what's that next word? Grace that is in Christ Jesus. Paul knew that Beyond God's grace, Timothy would have no hope. And so he says, you therefore, and the, the Greek language would say, keep on being strong. He had already started, keep on being strong in that grace that's in Christ Jesus. Now, when you put it into the context and you go back into chapter, chapter one, as, as I did in preparation for this message, it is very interesting why Paul says what he says. And he uh, anybody that understands anything about biblical interpretation and hermeneutics knows you have to have a context. There's a full context. There is a reason why he comes into verse two, chapter two, verse one, and says, you, therefore, Timothy. Interestingly enough, because what he has just mentioned in the latter part of chapter one is those who had turned away from him. Algelius and Hermogenes had walked away. Don't do that, Timothy. Don't do that. Later on in chapter four, there was Demas. Demas walked away from the apostle Paul, walked away from what he knew because he loved the world more. He loved the pleasures of the world. That attracted him, that, that drew him away from his Christian walk. And then 
just to be able to kind of put it all together in chapter four, verse 16, he says, and there are a number of others who had deserted him. They've just walked away from him as the apostle, as the one who had been investing his life in them. And if you have ever been there, it's a tough place to be. But Paul knows there are those who are committed. And one of those young men that was committed to the cause of Christ was a man by the name of Timothy. But he also mentions in chapter one, the positive, which was a guy by the name of Onephorosus. Here's a guy that had spent time to locate Paul and work with Paul. There was Luke, the, the author, the doctor, who was with him. There was Aquila and Priscilla. There was Epaphras. There was Titus. There was Epaphroditus and numerous others who were committed to the cause of Christ. But he's writing to Timothy to say, Timothy, you gotta hang in there. And so he uses the word, interestingly enough, in verse, two, or verse one of chapter two, you. And I think just about every translation has that word somehow, thou or you. It's an emphatic word. It's kind of like Paul getting eyeball to eyeball and saying, you, Timothy, you. It's kind of like one of our kids came up to my wife one time, grabbed her by the cheeks as though to say, you, mom, pay attention to me. And that's what Paul's doing here. Timothy, I'm at my, I'm at my last words and hours. Listen to what I have to say. See, Timothy was Paul's son in the faith. He was his child. Bible says he was my beloved child, the true child in the faith, my fellow worker, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, our brother. That's how Paul describes this one. But you'll notice he says, you therefore, my son. It's an endearing term of a family relationship. There was something about the relationship that, that Paul had with Timothy that was just a very close relationship. And there's nothing like having that kind of companionship with somebody that you invest your life in. I have to tell you, as I, as I read through this, and I know the Apostle Paul, he had, you know, there are some who figure they, they could not sit under the teaching of the Apostle Paul. They would not be Paul's best friend because of some of the characteristics of Paul. Timothy knew probably the good, the bad, and the ugly of the Apostle Paul, but Paul knew the the, the difficulties of this young pastor who was very timid, afraid, stomach problems because of the ministry that he had. They, they knew each other. There's something about that when you're close to one, together, one another. But interestingly enough, we learned a little bit of background of Timothy from the Thessalonian letter because Paul wrote and said, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel. Notice why Paul sent him, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Be aware, Thessalonians, trouble is coming. I'm sending Timothy to you. He could have sent anybody but he sends his son in the faith, the one he knew he could count on to share the gospel of Christ, to establish them, exhort them in their trust and confidence in God so that they would not be moved. 
We know the background of Timothy is that he was raised in a Christian home where faith was displayed by a mom and a grandmother. Unless I forget this, because I think I have it somewhere later on, never underestimate the value of parents and grandparents and their Christian godly values. So Timothy, or Paul says to Timothy, you therefore, my son, I want you to be strong. Keep on being strong. Keep on being strong in grace. The strength of grace. It is hard to separate God's favor, how we often call it, from his power. Grace is, uh, uh, just has that overflowing nature of God's power. Both are indicative of one another's favor and his power. Grace is the undeserved blessings of God. I don't know if you stopped to think about it, but you've been graced already today in many ways. It's God's daily provisions. It's his protection. It's his help, his strength and power, hope. It's mercy. It's loving kindness. Every day, we're recipients of God's grace in one form or another. And it's grace. It's his undeserved. Our undes- we don't deserve it. It doesn't come because we owe wrote it, but it gives us power every day. Grace that saves, grace that empowers, grace that equips us, grace that sustains us, grace that provides, grace that secures, grace that comforts, grace that protects us, grace, grace, grace. It's not just a grace that saves, that's where it starts, but God's grace is a daily grace. That's what Titus chapter two is all about. The saving grace and the, and the grace that transforms us day by day, moment by moment. And infectious Christianity finds strength in those unleashed blessings of Christ called God's grace because it is never limited by our circumstances. I don't care what circumstance you are in, God's grace is not short. And Paul says, Timothy, keep on, keep on being graced. Keep on being strong in that grace. One commentator wrote, God's grace saves us and it keeps us, but it also provides us with the inward motivation and strength to carry on God's work. Listen to these words. Even when we feel like giving up. Isn't that interesting? That's God's grace. The moment you're ready to call it quits, whatever it might be, Depend on God's grace. See, inadequacy finds us dependency on God's strength, on his confidence. We are not sufficient in ourselves. Scripture reminds us our adequacy comes from God. And so Paul's first concern to Timothy is, Timothy, be strong in God's grace. I'm concerned as I leave this life that you keep on being strong in God's grace. But there's a second concern in verse two, and that's entrusting the gospel to faithful people. Paul's heart knew that the, for Christianity to, to spread and to move forth, it would take entrusting the gospel to faithful people. My friends, that's still true today. And I want you to notice what he says. Timothy, the things that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. 
be able to teach others also. Any leader that's worth anything has concerns about who to pour their lives into. Those who will carry out the ministry and they are looking, like Paul, for those that'll be faithful, those that you can entrust to. They don't want fly-by-night people that they can't count on. Paul could count on Timothy. He said, you've heard some things from me, Timothy. It's been witnessed by other people. They have seen this. He had been with him. He had heard his letters. So the question comes, how does the gospel of truth get disseminated and spread around? By faithful souls. That's the only way it's gonna happen, folks. Now, it didn't have to happen that way. God could have snapped his fingers. You know, we know from illustration in scripture, he could have raised up the rocks and they could have pronounced everything. But he uses you and me as finite instruments, frail as we are, but hopefully faithful carry out the gospel ministry, just like he did with Timothy. Timothy needed to understand Paul would not be around much longer to ask questions of. You ever stop to think that Paul would not be around for Timothy to draw support from? Paul would not be around to help and encourage Timothy. Timothy would need to stand on his own and not be timid, but steadfast immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. He would need to be faithful and impart the truth to other faithful people because it would be his task now because the great apostle is stepping back and saying, I'm leaving, I'm done. And that's what God is looking for, those faithful people that we can impact. Charles Stanley said these words, and I quote, too many Christians have a commitment of convenience. They'll stay faithful as long as it's safe and doesn't involve risk, rejection, or criticism. Instead of standing alone in the face of challenge or temptation, they check to see which way their friends are going, unquote. That's pretty, uh, that's pretty straight to the juggler, isn't it? Talk about a good Christian punch. In other words, what he's saying is, it comes difficult more and more these days to find people that are committed to Christian value and Christian truth and invest their lives in other people. We'd rather be entertained and then go back to my workplace and not have to worry about it. See, Timothy had heard, he had listened, he had witnessed things in the apostles' life. Paul had been entrusted, now Timothy's entrusted, and now others are to be entrusted. What a great trilogy that ought to be a part of our life. It means to take something and give it to another for safekeeping. And I imagine if you're like me, there are certain things that you consider valuable that you would not entrust other people with because you just know they're not dependable. They're not gonna take care of it. But then you probably know some others that you say, yeah, yeah, I don't think that's a problem. I don't have to worry about it. Should that be any different with the gospel that we hear week by week, day by day, as God entrusts us as stewards of probably the most important thing we could ever have, the word of God. Special, valuable thing. I suppose you're probably familiar with the song and the little phrase that says, may those who come behind us find us famous, right? 
No. May those who come behind us find us rich. We wish. May those who come behind us find us faithful, dependable. Paul says, Timothy, one of my concerns for you and for others is entrusting this very gospel that's so valuable, but you gotta find the right people. You just don't entrust this to anybody. God's looking for faithful people who then, the Bible says, will be able to teach others also. They can, they're trustworthy enough, they're dependable enough, they're reliable enough as stewards that they can find others, that they can sit down and spend some time teaching them and helping them to understand what it means. There's a commitment involved in, in that. I was telling somebody after the first service that we don't see the discipleship like we used to see back when I was an associate pastor in the 70s and 80s. We don't, we don't see those people that are longing these days to sit down and impart the word of God in my life and the life of others. And I'm so thankful that God gave me that opportunity under a pastor and then gave me the opportunity to do that with others. And I'm still praying that God will do that, not just in a general way, but also I've been praying in recent days, God, give me one person, one faithful person that I can invest in that will teach others because they're faithful and they're gonna move it on. By the way, teaching does not necessarily mean classroom. And I know that because of the Hebrew culture. The Hebrew culture and the Eastern mindset what did have some sit down, the rabbis did sit down and they did teach. We know that in the New Testament as they went Sabbath to Sabbath and heard the rabbi teach. But the other thing that they would do that we've gotten away from in the Western culture is they would say, walk with me. Day by day, I want you to come with me. As a rabbi, if you're gonna be a good rabbi, you gotta follow me. You're gonna see what I do, you're gonna do what I do, and you're gonna follow me. Because that means some accountability. Interestingly enough, it's, a, it's the same principle as found in Deuteronomy chapter six where parents in the Jewish culture were to teach their kids 24 hours a day. If you go back and you read verses six and seven, you'll see when they rise up, when they walk by the way, when they go to bed. In other words, in a Jewish mindset, you never stop teaching your children. Wasn't a 10 minute devotional. That wasn't Jewish culture. That's why many of them knew, if not had memorized the five books, the Torah, Genesis and Deuteronomy, they at least knew it backwards and forwards because they spent that time. God's looking for faithful, dependable people. That's Paul's concern. Wow. I've got at least 45 minutes left. Are you good, good with that? No, no problem. They can bring the hot dogs in here, right? Well, I want to go to the second. Three practical illustrations. And I'm just going to lay these out for you. They're pictures. They're word pictures by the Apostle Paul. Some call them analogies. I call them practical illustrations. In other words, Paul moves into verse 3, 4, and 5, and 6 with the idea of being able to communicate in some way the very truth that he just got through saying to Timothy about his two concerns, the grace of God, being strong, and entrusting 
to faithful men. So in these verses, he illustrates and drives home his very point. Now, if a picture's worth a thousand words, they tell us, then these three illustrations ought to be worth a book. They're valuable to us. And what they do is they depict to us commitment of faithfulness and discipline and devotion. And the first is the commitment of the soldier in verses three and four. And I want you to know the very first words that Paul uses before he gets to the concept of a soldier. Suffer hardship with me. Now, isn't that what you want to hear from the guy that's dying and he's leaving you the reins? Hey, by the way, go on out there and, and, and look for some great opportunities to, to encounter some hard times, man. That's what it's all about, suffer hardship. But interestingly enough, if you move over to chapter three, that's exactly what he says. Notice what he says. But realize this, Timothy, in the last days, and that terminology fits us today, we are in the last days, biblically speaking. But in the last days, difficult times will come for you and the church. That's a good bedtime story, isn't it? Because how did he describe the difficult times? Men are gonna be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, Boy, if never a word got taken out of context, there it is. Malicious gossips, without self-control, brutals, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness. Hey, we're in the last days, folks. Timothy, difficult times are coming. Believers, difficult times are here. And so Paul says, suffer hardship like a good soldier. Like a good soldier. A soldier's life is not an easy one. And yet, if you remember the old Christian song, we don't sing it much. It's not even in most hymnals today. Onward, Christian soldiers. Marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Christ, the royal master, leads against the foe. Forward into battle, see his banners go. Onward, Christian soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Endure hardship. The idea here and the implication is, do it with me, Timothy. I'm not telling you to do something I'm not doing. I'm there. I want you to join me. Take part of that. He's a good soldier who suffers. Because it's not a picnic, it's a battle. I've, I grew up in a military town, grew up with a military dad, only four years, but that was enough for him at least. Um, I grew up in a military area where we had, as I pastored for 14 years of a church, we had guys come every two to three years that would leave. I learned a lot about what it meant to be a military man, what it meant to be a soldier. You're not your own. And you take on suffering in a different form. You take on hardship in ways that you don't think about often. But this soldier here that Paul talks about is an active service. He's not AWOL, he's not on vacation, he's not involved in everyday life affairs. That's something that's out there. I've, I've got this realm that I'm concerned with. They're not entangled or weaved into a system so as to forget 
the task and the primary responsibility. They are serving the military and they have a commander that is over them. They don't do whatever they want. For some of us, that really is enough to say that's true hardship. I can't do whatever I want. No, the objective is to please the commander. And there's an illustration here. We please the commander-in-chief, and that's not our president necessarily. That is our Lord. So Paul illustrates a soldier as a faithful, dedicated, disciplined, devoted servant. Then he talks about the, the commitment of an athlete in verse 5. If anyone competes as an athlete, he doesn't win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. Now, by nature, I am a competitor. By nature, I'm, a, I'm an athlete. I like doing things. I, I played baseball. The goal was to be a major league baseball player. Some of you know it didn't work out that way, but uh, I was competing, sometimes competing against myself, sometimes competing against others. Uh, my family is a family of competitors. From my mother, my dad not so much. I think we learned it from my mother, who was a competitor. Now, I married into a family where my wife and her family are not competitors. Now we, I, I, I turned, I turned, no, she turned me around. I'm, I'm not as competitive as I used to be. But there's something about athletics and that, see, in, in my family, it was win at all costs, usually. In Catherine's family, everybody wins. What kind of theology is that? No, 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 no. But see, an athlete, he wins with the goal in mind. I'm going to compete with the idea of standing on a podium and getting that wreath. But if we're going to do that, I've got to compete according to the rules, the standards that have been set up. We are living, living in a culture that no longer has standards, or at least has watered them down. But you know, interestingly enough, folks, as we look around, just in recent days, I've heard this. The church now has come to the point where the standards and the rules of this book no longer matter. In church, we'll rewrite it so it makes more sense to what we want than what it says. They have already disqualified themselves. We have to have some standard or rule to live by. If you don't, guess what you have? Chaos. And the, and the worldview today is chaos because it lives by no rules. Folks, you can't have that in the church. You can't have that if, if we're gonna carry on the ministry of spreading the gospel to the world around us. And so you have this commitment of those that need to be committed like, like an athlete who would discipline himself, who would, who would not want to be disqualified by veering off. And I thought of questions like this. Why do we have rules? That's what the world's saying to us. Why, why do we have rules? Here's one. Shouldn't we be allowed to do whatever we want? How about, don't rules keep us from really expressing our true inner self? That's stupidity, but it's there. Our culture says rules 
infringe on my rights? Aren't rules just another form of manipulation of others? And I, I want to say when those questions come, hogwash. So in other words, if we're looking at the text today, why can't I run wherever I want to run? Why can't I run in whatever time I want to run? Why can't, why can't I just veer off the path? Why, I want to go over that direction. No. There are rules and standards. Live by them. I grew up with rules and standards. Sometimes I didn't think they were fair until I became a parent. And I thought it was more than fair. Folks, Paul says, Timothy, there's going to be some suffering along the way, but you need to also compete like a, an athlete to the rules. Stick to it. And then the third one he gives as an illustration is the commitment of the farmer. Uh, if you're a farmer, you probably understand this. If you're not a farmer, you probably had no clue. The hardworking farmer is the first to receive of his crops. Up by daybreak. Man, ministering in his field or whatever it is that he's doing, he's out there uh, hoeing, weeding, seeding, harvesting. It's a non-ending job for a farmer. It's a hard, that's why he calls it, he's a hard worker rather than the lazy person. You want to understand a lazy person? Read Proverbs. It'll talk about the sluggard till you're blue in the face. And not, not the farmer. Let me illustrate this quickly. I, my first ministry uh, was, in a, uh, was in a farming area. Now, I understand I'm a strapping 26-year-old. I, I can do anything, right? So I have a young farmer that comes to me. His family owned this big farm, and they were haying. And he says, hey, Pat, he didn't call me Bob. He said, Pastor Bob, I want you, uh, would you like to come and buck hay with us? Not a problem. Not a problem. Get me out of the office. Fresh, fresh time out in the fresh you know, air and stuff. 95 degrees weather there in Idaho. Buck and hay, he told me, Bob, when you put the hooks into the hay bales, pull them back. I said, why? Because he said, there's rattlesnakes. You might get one. If you go this way, you might get one. Never saw one, but I'll tell you what, after two days of 95-degree weather, all day long bucking hay with this farmer, I was never so glad to get back in the pulpit. And you know what I mean. It's hard work. It's hard work. And folks, I don't want you to lose the significance of the power of these verses because all of them are telling us something of a biblical truth that it takes faithfulness, discipline, devotion, commitment to carry out the task at hand. And then Paul closes by this, and I'll share this simply, the careful admonition. The very last thing he tells Timothy here in this text, consider what I say and God will give you understanding. In other words, ponder what I said, Timothy. Mull it over. Think about it. Be serious. This is serious stuff now. I don't want you to run off and not think about this. Folks, I've had time to think and ponder over this message many times about what I would say, about who I'd be saying it to, praying and mulling over what this text would reveal to each one of us. 
And I'm expecting, just like with the Apostle Paul, I'm expecting God to give understanding. Uh, God is a God of wisdom, God of understanding, uh, so that we know what to do with what it is that Paul has said, just like with Timothy, and we'd mull it over and be very serious about what God would say. Someone has stated these words, you must get involved to have an impact. No one is impressed with the one lost record of the referee. Think about it. Are you dependent entirely on the Holy Spirit and the grace of God to give you that strength that you might have that type of Christianity in your life that's infectious and spreads? That's what we want. Let's pray. Father, we just to thank you this morning. We might be more serious in our Christian walk with you more than we are already. That, Lord, we would be part of seeing the spread of Christianity one by one throughout this community, our communities, throughout this world. Lord, we're gonna suffer for it. It's gonna take commitment. It's gonna take hard work. It's gonna take discipline. But we know, Lord, your grace will strengthen us in such a way to be able to do it. Give us vision, give us eyes that are open to the faithful people around us that we might invest our lives in because we have been invested in. We pray for your glory in Jesus' name, amen.